Laughing and Weeping, the Year Beginning Conference. Over the New Year 2009 holiday, Father Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson presented a teaching of the Enneagram to over 600 people in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is Session 5 with Russ Hudson, the Head Center, Types 5, 6, and 7. So the Head Center. One thing's for sure that, you know, in the history of spirituality, certainly the body has been seen as a problem, as Richard was uh, speaking so eloquently about before, and also the head. How many people have been given the spiritual advice, you gotta get out of your head? All right, nice try. <laughs> All right, and I think it's important to be careful with words because we so easily follow them in a direction that they're not intending. The idea is not to get out of your head. I'd say we need to get in our right mind. You know? God help the person who tries to go this, on the spiritual path without the capacity for discrimination. God help the person who can't find clarity. God help the person who can't recognize the own, their own inner guidance and wisdom trying to come through to them. It's all head center stuff. So we need to, as with the belly and as with the heart, to sort of revise our understanding a little bit of what this head is. What is it? And just as we saw, as I said, running around doing stuff doesn't mean you're connected with your body. You could be an Olympic athlete and out to lunch in terms of being in your body. I know because I've talked to him about this. You can be, um, you can be reacting emotionally and not really present in your heart. And in the same way, you could be completely focused on all the kind of nonsense that runs through our minds without really being present in your head. So what's it like to be present in your head? Well, I like to propose there's like a three stages in noticing. First thing, just when we start to notice what's in our head, as soon as we turn the lights on, as soon as there's a little more presence at work, you notice there's a lot of nonsense going on in there. One thing, reason I think people fear silence and solitude is because it reveals the incessant racket in our heads, right? To just even begin to pay attention, you see, most of what, can you imagine how interesting it would be if you could create some device and sort of plug it into your ear or the back of your head or something and it would broadcast what you're thinking? <laughs> you know? I used to joke, but it's not so much of a joke that the difference between a quote sane person and a quote crazy person is the sane person has enough sense not to say what they're thinking. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at it, we're not thinking about anything. It's racket, replaying old conversations, little fantasies, random memories, sexual weirdness, uh, God knows what is going on in there. Uh, tired old opinions, telling somebody off. There's no thinking going on. It's just inner chatter. That's what's there most of the time. When somebody says you need to get out of your head, what they're really saying is be aware of how you're filling your awareness with all that chatter. And that you're not that chatter yet. That chatter is kind of like, you know, when we're anxious about being alone and we put the television on so that there's some noise and we feel like we've got company. It's exactly that. We want somebody to talk to. Who else is going to listen to us? So we just talk to ourselves. Most of what's going on is just that. It's like keeping my ego company. And if that inner chatter stopped, most of us would freak out because we go, where am I? We sort of locate ourselves by our little inner uh, monologue. But you know, the next stage is what I call actual thinking. Our, our, here in the U.S., we're very funny. We, we tend to, people always tend to overdo what they do too much. People even do this with drugs. You know, people who tend to get addicted to the drugs that make them more of how they already are. Sevens are drinking more coffee. They get into hard drugs, they're going to pick cocaine, you know. Nines like marijuana. Gee, I need to mellow out more. <laughs> how can I suppress myself a little further, right? Fives, we like acid and hallucinogens. Boy, that really helps us out. Uh, we, 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 as culturally, we do that too. I think Americans, by and large, are very emotional people. We express things emotionally. We share. We like to express our feelings. We like to think of ourselves as generous, welcoming. We're always expressing what we think in very emotional ways. Ask any European about what they think of us. Ask, ask a French person, ask a German person, ask a Brit, ask a Scandinavian, ask an Irish person what you think of Americans, that, that we're too in our heads? No one in the world thinks that about us. <laughs> Except us. I would say it's far more rare for me to find somebody who can actually think. To actually think is to be able to follow a thread of reasoning and find out something different than what you thought before. How many people you know do that on a regular basis? There are some, some people in here do it, but it's not common. And so even to bring a little bit of clarity and presence to the head is necessary even to think clearly about something. So I don't wanna shortchange that. That's a step in the right direction, right? to be actually able to reason. But then that's the doorstep to what Richard was talking about, about the more non-dual part of thought. And he spoke about that being connected with the void. Well, yes, is my punchline for this part. In a certain way, uh, some of the Eastern traditions, and particularly Buddhism, did a very thorough investigation of the nature of the head center, 
That's one of the reasons I think Thomas Merton was drawn to studying certain things about Buddhist practice. But the true, what they all agree on, and which you probably have experienced, the true nature of mind, with a capital M, is complete stillness, silence, and spaciousness. Boundless stillness, peace, clarity. Forever and ever, amen. So I would say that the head center gives us the possibility of sensing, recognizing the eternal presence that's right here in the midst of phenomena. That space. It's like what we don't look at, we, we tend to look at our feelings, our sensations, our thoughts. Just take any one of them. Just take your thoughts. Okay, your thoughts are happening. Um, where are they happening? And the glib Western answer is, in my brain, well, you know, if we sawed your head open, I don't think we'll see your thoughts. Yes, your brain is going through electrical activity that supports the thinking, but subjectively speaking, in your experience, what's the theater that these thoughts are being projected on? When you see a tree, where is that tree? Look around. Look to the sides, look behind you, look up and down, not just at the image of the tree. What's there, the reason you can't see it is because it's precisely nothing. Absolute nothing, the void. But it's not a void that's like a deficient, scary place. The ego's a little scared of it because you get a little bit like the wily coyote, remember? He'd be chasing the roadrunner and suddenly be out in space going, oh! Right? That's like the ego mind freaking out as it realizes it's not based in anything. Right? And then there is this process of opening to this stillness, the vast freedom, peace, clarity of the soul, of, of spirit, immaculate. Right? You can see your thoughts are happening. What surrounds them and is inside them is this tremendous peace and stillness. And the way cool thing about this is this stillness is not inactive. It's hard to find words for this. This stillness is the on one hand, it brings the sense of knowing, of recognition, of clarity and wisdom. Don and I have called it the sense of guidance. Where you're kind of clear, it's not you thinking exactly, it's like a spontaneous recognition of truth, reality, that just comes. You don't have to plan it. It's like you just relax and suddenly you've got mail, right? There it is, right in your mind. Yeah. You know, one of my mentors, A.H. Uh, Almas, said, he says, God cannot resist a sincere question. He also says, a sincere question is a genuine prayer because you're having the humility to say, I don't know what's supposed to happen. Thy will be done. What 
is this? What needs to happen here? Who am I really? Who am I talking to? Why are we misunderstanding each other? Anybody says you don't need to know things is just spiritually lazy. There's two kinds of knowing. What we don't need is a lot of more intellectual explanation, which is what Richard was talking about, filling our mind with these definitions as kind of placeholders, which is another kind of laziness, where we don't try to look any deeper to find out. We say, I believe in God. What is this God like that you believe in? What is this God? Investigate. We use the word soul all the time. What do we mean by that? What is it in my experience? You see, we want that real connection with all this stuff we learned about and know is true on some level in love. We have to be open. We have to be open-ended. And the good news is our soul already is radically open. Right? It's our nature. Now that guidance, the knowing, is the basis of faith. And it has two sides to it. And I'll talk a lot more about this when I get to the six, because six is the center of the whole business here. When we can experience this stillness, we recognize the stillness and the, and the presence is the same thing. Presence isn't a thing. Right? As you open to the presence, it just feels like it's everywhere. It's inside. It's around everything. It's just, what is this? Right? When you know this present directly, you experience it as the ground of everything, and especially the ground of you. And when you know that, you know that what you are is just an expression of that, and the core of what you are cannot be harmed or taken away. That you rest, if you will, in the bosom of the Lord. That presence is what? It's the divine presence. And it's not a rumor. It's not something I have to believe in. By God, it's here. And I know that when I am. I don't need all these intellectual pyrotechnics and rationalizations and, you know, just land where you are, open to the stillness, and know that what you seek is already here, holding everything you do every step of the way. Guiding you, supporting you, in you, around you. You can't lose it. And it is never failing us. Try to sneak up on presence and find it not here. <laughs> Try to find it asleep on the job. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm going to always say, presence! Oh, it's still here. <laughs> It's always here, never goes away, never sleeps. Always here, always supporting. Guidance, 24 hours a day if you need it, always. Inner ground. If you show up, it's here. Isn't that good news? I found it to be. I'm a head type, so this was really good news. Now... As we look at the three types here, they illuminate different parts of this, just like we saw in the other triads. But all of these types, in essence, are trying to get back or find this sense of ground, direction, and guidance. That's what we're looking for in this triad. These were the I don't want to be messed with types. 
These were the see me the way I want to be seen types. Five, six, and seven are the what can I trust types. What can I trust? In other words, I'm looking for something to be that orientation, ground, and guidance, which is utterly trustworthy. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? So a lot of our mental activity, and particularly if you're one of these types, but everybody, is some effort to create a ground for the sense of myself. For most of us, our ground is that stream of thoughts and chatter. That's the ground of me. Take that away. Where the hell am I? Right? It's trying to create a ground, something that feels like it's always there, solid. It's trying to produce a sense of guidance and direction. Okay, here's how you operate in the world. This is where we're going. And this is when you turn left. And this is how you get there. And we're thinking about all that. Another way uh, Don likes to put it, eight, nine, and one, you sh something shows up. Two, three, and four, what is it that's shown up? What's the quality of it? Five, six, and seven, well, now that I'm here, where am I going? Quo vadis. Right? So this makes sense? So what we learn here is another interesting thing, is how all the centers are necessary. Try to get your mind to quiet down if you're not in your body and aware of your heart. Anybody here ever try to practice meditation? You're, you're centering prayer, right? You sit there and you just have to listen to this thing that goes on and on and on. Well, the little magic trick is as soon as you really start to be landed more in your body, in your breath, in the sensation of the moment, right now, sensing this warmth and life, really with your heart, just letting yourself being affected by all the experience you're having right now, your mind goes, oh, gee whiz, I don't have to be working to create this false self. I think I'll take a rest. There's the quiet. It just starts, almost like you don't even notice it. It's already there. So you're just aware this peace, the stillness is already here with me. I've just stopped entertaining myself. Yeah. And out of that stillness comes the illumination of whatever we need to know. So I'll speak about that now. Is this, so this is a good uh, beginning here. You get that? Oh, well, one other important thing. What's the master emotion here? Fear, right? We know these are fear types. Well, you just consider a minute losing the sense of ground. There's nothing supporting me, nothing holding me up, nothing looking after me. Guidance. I don't know which way I'm going or which way's up or down. I don't know if I'm screwing up or doing the right thing. Orientation, guidance, all of that, this ground and the sense of support, the sense that there's something here I can trust, take that all away. What emotion are you going to feel? Fear. Suddenly you feel like a tiny thing in a universe of things. And when you look around at those other things, you see that things don't last. So if I'm a thing, oh boy. And we walk around like that. I've often said that unconsciously, if you tap into this part of you, it's a bit like 
going down a freeway at about 90 to 100 miles per hour with a blindfold on. And if you actually would take a moment to sense into your body as you're rushing around your day dealing with stuff, that's what you'd feel like. We're just like bracing ourselves. We're going to hit something. We're going to crash, right? And as you do that and you're aware of that fear, feel what it does to your body. Oh, we're right back to the eight, nine, and one. Resisting, controlling, trying to keep us a solid self together and saying, please leave me alone. And the whole thing sort of spins itself out, you see? Or we breathe, we land right where we are. We start to notice our deeper heart and our mind just goes whoosh. And suddenly we're here as a real human being. I'll tell you one thing Gurdjieff said about this that uh, I always found very challenging, but I like challenges, don't you? He said that a person is not doing a, the work until they're there in all three centers. That person can do the work. He says everything up to that, we're seeking to be a candidate for the work. We're, we're seeking, we're applying for a job, if you will. We're applying for a job, spiritually applying for a job. When we actually have the grace and presence to be in all three centers, we become a usable vehicle. That doesn't mean that we don't get used in various ways anyway, but you kind of know the difference. And I bet you you'll also notice that in such moments where you did the greatest, most beautiful things you've done in your life, you were there as a full human being, right? That made you, something made you step up to the plate and be there in the presence of that grace to be a vehicle to participate in what needed to happen. Does this make sense? All right. So let's look at the, the three types here. The five... Uh, this is my home base. Um, and by the way, just one thing I'll, I, I'll say again, we tend to get into shorthands in the Enneagram world about this stuff. I think it's more accurate to say I am a person with a five personality than to say that I am a five. Just to keep a little space about the fact that what we really are, our true identity, our actual beingness is beyond all these numbers. It's beyond all these types. It's the mystery I spoke of with the four. And that mystery has taken a particular form and flavor that is our type. So, you know, just to bear that in mind as we're thinking about this, we are more than our personalities. Right? So, the five. The essential core here, I've spoken words, but I'll try to express it. Well, you've probably been watching me do it. Um, it's the soul's capacity to be illuminated and to illuminate, to shed light, to clarify. It's the quality of illumination and clarity to be clear, 
to make things clear. Now, clear doesn't just mean like clear communication. It doesn't mean just like using words clearly, although that's a symptom. When you're clear, you feel clear, you feel more transparent, and the world becomes more transparent. It's like the light in things shows forth more, the colors are brighter, the sounds are more vivid, you notice the littlest things. You're, it's like you're more awake to everything, but it's this quality of clarifying, illuminating, and that illumination is exactly the same as what we call recognition. Whenever you have an aha, it's not thinking exactly. It's a recognition of truth. Right? You go, whoa, that feeling. And it fills your whole body. It's not just an interesting thought. Your whole body is illuminated by, whoa, I get it. Anybody never have that in their life? We all know what that is. If you're a five, you live for that. Just please, lightning, keep striking me. Yeah. And that can be in any area. The, the stereotype of fives is they're always scientific. But you, this could happen in how you're dealing with your kids. What's the right thing to do to help me with my kids? It could happen in an artistic endeavor. But it's that seeking to be in line with that penetrating illumination that cuts through and gets to the real essence and truth of something. Thank God we got that. Another grace here at work and everybody has access to this but if you're a five this is your specialty there's one other side of it that i don't always talk about but i feel i can here since we're talking about paradox and light and dark there is the illuminating part which is like this flash of brightness and illumination it's literally bright right some of us have that inner sight we see it as like brightness like lightning flashes but the other side of it is what I call black light. Now that could sound a little spooky, but what it actually is, I call it God's bug zapper. And if you're paying attention to your consciousness in the way I was talking about earlier, we definitely need some bug zapping. But we don't have to do it. That's the good news. It's not like I have to get rid of all this stuff. If you're present, just like there's these illuminations of what's true and real, there is this other force that comes out that just clears out the delusions and the nonsense and our false beliefs and ideas. The part of us that sees how full of crap we've been, but without judging it. It just, you're sitting there thinking some idiotic thought and your presence suddenly goes, Whoosh. it's gone. You're believing some horrible old story and you get present, you breathe, and something goes, it, it just falls away, it melts, it dissolves. Hallelujah. <laughs> the only problem is our ego is propped up on all that stuff. So we might be a little afraid of it, and yet when it actually happens, we're tremendously relieved. Like, oh, thank God that happened. I actually believed that, I actually thought that. So the illumination and the process of the unfolding of truth and reality that's here at work is both the illumination of what is true and real and the kind of bug zapping of our delusions. And they're both a grace. You, you can't do anything to produce them except be present and let that lightning strike. Does this, this make sense? Hey, who are the fives in the house? Huh? 
Is this, is this making sense what I'm saying? It's like, this is what we live for, these moments. You might, if you're just in your personalities of five, you ha- might have had that moment that that happened in 1968, and you spend the next 10 years trying to understand what that moment was. Right? Rather than repeat the experiment in a way, and whatever it was that made me receptive to that wisdom. What happens in fives is, of course, the loss of presence means the loss of that. The ability to know, recognize reality from delusion. So, so you think you can tell heaven from hell, blue skies from pain. Can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail, a smile from a veil? Do you think you can tell? You know, Roger Waters wrote that in Pink Floyd many years ago. It's the five dilemma. Right? Do you think you can tell? Well, the answer, once you lose the connection with that, is no, I can't. It's terrifying. Not knowing what reality is, how to recognize anything, what's safe, what's dangerous, what's what, what hell, I'm lost. So the, the question here is, what do I trust? The five in this freakout turns to the one thing that I think will save me, which is my mind. What do I trust? The old noodle. And that old noodle is going to figure this all out. The only problem is this old noodle on this level is disconnected from the knowing. So can't produce that illumination that I want. Right? No matter how much stuff I learn, memorize, cogitate on, I don't feel like I know. Just like all the other types, you see. So the, the passion here, which is a heart state, we need to talk about that part is avarice. And avarice, as a five, I can tell you, there's not a lot of people in the Enneagram world that seem to understand it. Avarice, and first of all, we look at the behavior of avarice rather than the direct experience of it. Psychologists would recognize avarice as an old-fashioned way of talking about the schizoid state, where we just give up and retreat and disconnect from our feelings and kinesthetic intelligence. It's like, I'm not dissociative. I'm not out and not paying attention. I'm paying a lot of attention, but only with my mind. Everything else switched it off. So avarice, the core of avarice is what I call the contracted heart. It's like my heart shrivels into a little raisin. It's like um, when the water retreats into the little gullies and cracks in the rocks. It's like my love, my contact, my, my heartfulness just goes into these little hidden places in myself. And what I'm avaricious about is not money. And despite Enneagram theories uh, to the contrary, I would say unless the five is pretty down those levels, not knowledge. I know fives who won't talk, do anything or connect with people, but you ask them, how can I com- fix that computer network in my office? Well, well, let me tell you. Right? That's the one thing I have in abundance, so I'll share that aplenty. Avariciousness is a hoarding of the self and particularly of the heart. I think sometimes a jester speaks a, a thousand words. The posture of avarice is this.
shriveled up, terrified, curled up inside myself, and I'm not coming out. That's avarice. I won't make contact. Yet, here's your dilemma, fives. There is no real knowing illumination without contact. Because while we might fantasize, it's the other people out there are the problem. I don't want to make contact with them. That's not who I've broken contact with. Broken contact with me. I've broken contact with my soul, the, the core of me. And unless I come back into that, my knowing will be fleeting and limited. Little glimpses with a lot of footnotes. Does it make sense? Like all the types, what we need to do is what scares us the most. <laughs> Got to come out and make contact. And in that contact, what's the payoff? Oh, when you touch the living moment, the living moment reveals itself, reveals its nature. And this knowingness that I love is restored to its proper place. Is this clear? So many other things I could say, but that's the nub of it. And as a five takes that risk, comes out of that schizoid hiding place, starts to, however sloppily and tentatively, make that contact, it starts to restore the knowing and it gives birth to the virtue of the five, which was given by Ichazo's detachment. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer again. Fives do detachment just fine when they're completely in their fixation, right? We do detachment just fine. I prefer the term, as does Sandra Maitri, my friend Sandra Maitri, non-attachment. What's the difference? Detachment is cutting off. That's the schizoid thing itself. Non-attachment, huh. When you are in touch with this eternity of our consciousness, of the divine presence, when it's here illuminating things for you, you become profoundly aware of how fleeting everything is. This is very Buddhist. Transience is the way the Buddhists talk about it. You see that everyone you behold is here like a flicker, like a little flash. Now, on an ego level, without presence, that would might lead us to, well, heck, this is too much trouble, too much hurt. I'm going to contract and stay schizoid and just go like that. But with presence, that's very recognition brings out compassion, kindness, and love. All Seeing the fleetingness of human beings, the beautiful delicacy of the world and people, all that clarity comes in service to their recognition of the truth too and to their holding. Like the great quote from the Buddha I liked, knowing that life is as brief as a star at dawn, a flash of lightning, how can you quarrel? It's that. And that non-attachment actually becomes a liberation of the heart. You're not clinging to anything nor avoiding anything. You're holding the world just as it is and in love with it. That's non-attachment. It's a clean-heartedness. 
So, the six. <laughs> six is the center of the whole thing here. I just want to say also that some of the types get bashed a bit in the Enneagram world. Like, I always want to be a, a heartful defender of the threes. They get shamed a lot in the Enneagram world. I hope we've done them a service. All the types do in different ways. Sixes, it's, I think it's also just something in sixes that sixes have a real hard time seeing what's good about themselves. It's a very curious thing. The rest of us sure see what we love about you, but you know, sixes have a harder time with this. So I like to dwell a little bit on what is amazing here. So the core of six... Well, let me put it this way. Nothing that we're talking about would be possible without it. It is the quality of awakeness itself that we can be awake. Think of how amazing it is that you can be awake to things, notice things, take in experiences, recognize stuff. The fundamental awakeness of the soul itself, which is a grace of God. The awakeness, right? And that in that state of awakeness, you notice everything. You know what's here and what isn't here. You can see what's real and what's your delusional thoughts. You can also feel very directly in that awakeness this presence all around you and in you that gives you an unshakable courage to just take your place and walk your walk in the world. However things may look, in a moment, you know in your being that that's not the deepest truth, that what's actually here is this ocean of awake, wakefulness, this presence, and that's what you and I actually are at the deepest level, right? We see that in each other. And so you, when you know that, you can do what you got to do in life. And it's here also that we see most profoundly that awake, awakeness is like where we recognize what we would call guidance, wisdom coming through. It's not the illumination of reality and truth like the five, but it's a close cousin. It's more like knowing whether to turn left or turn right. It's more like knowing what to say and what not to say. It's a kind of intelligent relatedness to reality as it's happening now that gives me the ability to operate as a warrior of spirit. That's pretty good, don't you think? I was sharing with some people at lunch um, an image I often use when I'm teaching people about six that I, I adore is the Lord of the Rings. That um, Professor Tolkien, I believe, was a six, and his story is all a pay-on to teamwork, loyalty, Serving the highest good you know no matter what. Perseverance, that's a big six quality. And I, I was sharing at lunch this, the, the very perfectly six moment where Gandalf, the wise authority figure, comes up to little Frodo, the little hobbit. There's a little hobbit in all of us. And says to him, well, Frodo, this is the great ring of power, the source of all evil in the world, and you're responsible for it. And what is little Frodo's reaction? Ah, take it, take it. Not me, not me. No, you, you got to do it. I, you're a big wizard. I don't know anything. I'm just a little guy. Please. Don't do it. 
And then he stops and goes, what must I do? That's the six. This is the part of us that is also understanding. Ah, thank you. That we're here to fulfill something. We're here to, we're on a mission. Ones get that mission thing. But I think ones sort of err on the side of assuming they know what it is a little prematurely. (laughs) Right? And sixes are on the side of pretty much actually knowing what it is, but coming up with a lot of rationalizations of why they can't do it. Well, you know, I've got kids, and I've got bills to pay, and i got this to do, and all oh, this presence business, I don't know about that. I'm a blah, 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 blah. Right? Why I'm saying that is that's in the direction of the passion. Because when we lose that sense of the awakeness, the support of that presence and awakeness and, and the sense of or, true orientation... That's what this brings. It's like an inner gyroscope. You know what's what. You know where true north is. You know where you're going when you're in touch with this. Even though you don't know it cognitively, you just fall in, just with that in a silent way, you're just walking your path and you know you're taken care of. You know what I'm talking about? We have moments of this. And sometimes we have whole important parts. It often comes out when, they're at, when the proverbial you know what has actually hit the fan. A lot of sixes doubt themselves, but there's actually a crisis. Suddenly, this other person shows up and takes care of business and does a great job. But then the waters close in again, and I forget. And I think I'm this bumbling person again. But it's always here, and it's always you. Now... As we lose presence, that awakeness shifts into a very close cousin, vigilance. Suddenly it goes from being awake to, what's here? What's here? What's going on? What's entered the picture? Anxiety, fear. Vigilance is this awakeness with just this little dollop of fear mixed in. And then that vigilance starts to become watchfulness. Then it becomes hypervigilance. Then it becomes suspicion. If you take it far enough, it becomes paranoia. See how that would work? That's a little example of how the levels work. The important thing to know when you're six is once the anxiety is like the awakeness without presence. The anxiety is the awakeness without presence. We feel the disconnect. We feel like, you know, our, our, our legs are going in circles in, in midair, right? We feel that we're disconnected. It's an organic response. Now, when you start, uh, it's also been often said that fear is, is awakeness without, oh no, fear is excitement without breathing. Fear is excitement without breathing, right? You ever notice when you're scared, you're not too drowsy. You're not out to lunch. Generally speaking, when you're scared, you're like, what's that? What's that? Right? We're with it, right? So 
as with the, the eight, nine, and one, we, you need to learn to sort of understand how anger isn't your enemy. Five, six, and seven, you need to learn how fear is not your enemy. But you have to be learn what it is and be with it. I can say, well, you've got to get rid of your fear. Well, lots of luck again. All right? And the, so the passion of the six is just this constant state of anxiety and feeling ungrounded. That it's like your heart is, is buzzing. And that's kind of always there. You, you might be putting on a brave face and doing what you got to do. You might be doing bungee jumping so it won't bug you anymore just to get out of your head, whatever. But that buzz, that, that anxiety is just the signal of your own disconnect from the presence. And it's, again, it's a close cousin to the awakeness. So what do we do when we feel that anxiety? Breathe. Breathe. <sighs> Be with it. And then it sort of spreads out and becomes this field of lightness. You know, try it. Don't just take Russ's word. Repeat the experiment. See if what I'm saying is true. Sixes are good skeptics, too, which is helpful. You got to find out if it's true for you. Here is the area I was talking about earlier, the difference between secondhand faith and firsthand faith. You got to make it your own. You got to see if what those wise people that you love and those books you've read that you love are actually true in your experience. And even if they are, how they're true in your experience. Does this make sense? It's part of the sixth journey. Hmm. I get all kind of into that energy where I'm up here talking about it. i got to run it to tell you about it. <laughs> so the passion is this anxiety, and it's not just fear, because, you know, if a, if a rhino came in here or a bunch of rabid dogs, we'd all have fear, and it would be normal to do so. The body will say, fight or flight. The glands get activated, the nerves, and you'll do some behavior based on a danger, right? That's normal. Anxiety is when you're sitting here as if there were rabid dogs or a rhino coming in here. <laughs> and there ain't no rhino. Right? But you're thinking, what if a rhino came in here? <laughs> that, that's the mental part. That's the fixation. The fixation, the passion always go together. But here, that kind of worrying, doubting mind is the mind keeping the passion going. They feed each other. They all do that. I'm just using the six as an example where, you know, suddenly you're just thinking, oh, there are layoffs at the company. Wonder if I'll be next. Oh, I, my, my wife just gave me that look. That could mean she's thinking about a divorce. Oh, oh, I think the kids really hate me now. Oh, oh. The thing is, we start thinking that way. It keeps the anxiety. And to your nervous system, it's as if those things were actually happening. When you're a six, your life could actually be pretty good, but you're telling yourself all the ways it could fall apart, so it feels like it is falling apart. Does this make sense? It's like we keep ourselves scared, and part of the reason we do that is, I think sixes get the sense that keeping myself keyed up like that will keep me on top of things. Like fear is the false way I try to be with that wakefulness. Like I'm trying to, I'm like a guard trying to stay on duty and make sure my world doesn't fall apart. Does that make sense? 
I, I get addicted to that sort of adrenal pumped up sensibility to keep me awake and dealing with stuff. How I always see it is like people very seldom think that if you're calm and relaxed and in a, just a pleasant state that you'll deal well with problems. Like we don't think, hmm, let me get calm now and look at my problems. We think, no, you gotta be worried and fret and talk about it like this because that means you're taking it seriously, you know? It's interesting that we think that. But it all leads back to this guidance. It all leads back to this awakeness that is always here. So as the six starts to see that, to breathe through that fear and anxiety and just stay here and reconnects with that awakeness, the virtue arises of courage. Courage. Now, courage is not the same as counterphobia, which is going against your fear and some sort of impulsive activity, trying to get your mind to shut up by doing stuff. Right? It's not that. Nor is it, I've often said people will use the example of a soldier falling on a grenade to save his buddies. I say that's love. You fall on that grenade because you love your friends. You want to save them. What's the courage spoken of here? My friends, it takes courage to show up. It takes courage to live in truth. It takes courage to stop hiding in our ego delusions and live in the living daylight of this moment and say, I am here and I am willing to be here and stay here right where I am in this crazy world as who I really am and not make excuses. Anybody find that easy to do? Think of how much, if we could take everybody in here, how much we actually know about the truth of spirit, the truth of grace, the truth of Holy Spirit, the truth of presence. We all know. Yet, we think of all the excuses you make in your mind. Well, you know, you can't really do that in the real world. <laughs> What's happening? We chicken out. Now, it's not going to help us to blame ourselves about that. But to hold that to in compassion and see it and understand it. Understand it in the sense of letting it be illuminated. What would it mean for me to take my stand and say, what must I do? See? Knowing with a true faith, nothing bad can happen. Ultimately. The victory is already won. Hmm? Haven't we been told that? See what courage that takes. That's what you're invited to, sixes. Does that seem like getting up in the worth getting up in the morning? How many sixes we got in here? All right. Great. Well, thank you. Last type. How much time do I have? Not much. <laughs> Ten minutes? Let me, well, if need be, I'll say some more about seven later, but I don't want to shortchange seven. Sevens will let me know if I do. <laughs> They're not shy about those things. So, again, all this makes more sense when we're more connected with the ground that these things arise from. 
right? So we want to look back again at the qualities of our consciousness, our, our true mind, you might say. And one other area of it is the seven domain, what sevens live for. And uh, it's fun to get in touch with. Um, a few things to note about this. Again, I can't give you one word that will cover all of it. There's a few, and I'll try to paint the picture for you. Our, our soul, when we're actually home in it, is a place of absolute freedom. There are no walls, no limits, nothing holding us back nothing condemning us. It's a place of unspeakable freedom. In fact, it's not that our consciousness has freedom. It is freedom. It's astonishing how many people have great awakenings in prison because they find this out, that my body may be in a cell, but my consciousness is not. That can't be taken away from us. So there is this breathtaking freedom. It's like our consciousness feels unlimited. The resources of our soul are unlimited. The gifts that come from our spirit, from God, the graces raining on us, always unlimited. Abundance, freedom. And the, the other word that is a very popular word, we just came out of the Christmas season, and that's a word we like in the Christmas season. The recognition of this and the whole thing coming together brings a sense of joy, a quiet joy, a delight in existence. And if you're seven, this is your specialty. The sense of freedom, open-endedness, possibility, abundance, and joyfulness. You know, a lot of uh, the Enneagram literature, again, sort of paints sevens as party people, superficial. I know a lot of sevens who hate parties. Or maybe they went when they were, you know, teenagers in early 20s, but most of us did in those days. You know, it's more... What sevens are about is the sense of freedom, a sense of possibility, the sense of unlimited horizons, and the sense that somewhere in this world is my true fulfillment. Somewhere is my pot of gold, my inner pot of gold. Right? Any sevens in the house? I, what, what I'm saying makes sense to you? Yeah. So what happens is, as we lose the presence, we lose this sense of, my God, we lose our sense of freedom, we lose the sense of abundance, we lose the sense of possibility, we lose the sense of joy, of fulfillment. Uh, that's pretty terrible, pretty awful feeling, unbearable. So our ego gets busy doing the best it can to understand this. Now, what is 
to the ego doesn't understand what this freedom is. To the ego, freedom is having choices. I can have more channels on the television. I can go to the supermarket and get whatever kind of fruit I want. I can live wherever I want. I can go here, there, and everywhere, right? The ego thinks freedom is having choices. So the more choices, ah, the more freedom, right? But here's the, the, the terrible trap of it. If you come to believe, unconsciously of course, that more freedom equals more choices, what happens when you make a choice? You, you appear to lose freedom because there's less choices, less possibilities. So my trap becomes, I don't want to make choices. I don't want to be committed. I don't want to get stuck in this, that, or that because it feels like I'm losing the thing that's most precious to me, which is my freedom, my sense of freedom. But the more I do this, the more I get myself tied up in all sorts of knots and get further and further and further from the sense of freedom. Also because seven is a thinking type. They are doing a lot, those sevens, but nothing compared to the action that's going on in, in my head when I'm a seven. I'm thinking, 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 thinking. Now, I'm not having all these worried kind of thoughts like the six or scrutinizing everything like the five. I'm thinking about possibilities as a seven. Oh, we could do this, or this could happen, or wouldn't this be great, or that would be fabulous. Oh, man, we got to try this. And I kind of keep myself entertained that way. And the excitement of thinking about that is what gives me sort of the ego's version of the joy. But it's not very satisfying. Because it's not the real thing, right? And it's very addictive, like all these Enneagram patterns are. I just keep thinking about all this stuff I'm going to do. So, the more I do that, the more I fall into the passion of the seven, which is gluttony. Can you see what that would be from here? The more away from presence I am, the more, the more away from the grace of God of this, the more I start to feel no abundance, no freedom, no fulfillment, no satisfaction. So my ego's desperately trying to find it, trying to get the experiences that I think will fill me up and make me feel fulfilled and free and happy again. But no matter how much I do, it doesn't do it because it's not in the content of experience that I'll find it. It is not the content of experience that brings us the sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, and freedom. It is the quality of our attention and presence in any experience we have. You could be sitting on the john, watching the dust motes come through the bathroom window and be in rapture. And you can spend half of your life savings on an extravagant adventure or party and have it be a big bust because you weren't there. Right? And a lot of times the expectations about these things we plan and plan and plan for actually sets us up for that disappointment. You see? So the seven is, is not about, you know... I, one thing sevens hate, I can tell you, is being accused of being shallow. They hate it. 
And from their perspective, it's not that at all. It's just I'm desperately looking around the world and trying to, like a giant ice cream scoop, I'm trying to get all the flavors because, I, you know what, I might get the wrong flavor. This is the loss of the guidance part. You see, the guidance comes from the presence. It's the seven part of it. The six is trying to figure out which way should I go, how can I be safe, how can I take care of what I need to take care of. Seven is saying, wherein lies the fulfillment of the soul. And I know as a seven, too, that has something to do, and no one ever says this, has something to do with me fulfilling some kind of service, some kind of idealism. Sevens are very idealistic. There's something, but it's like, here I am, 55 years old, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. What I'm looking for is this place where it all seems to come together and make sense and fills my heart. That's what I'm really looking for, you see? But the more I'm distracting myself with all these possibilities, I'm really scared to try to land anywhere to find out if that's it. So it's like, without that guidance, do I pick A, B, or C? Do you want vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry? What's the seven answer in fixation? All the above. Trial and error, baby. Well, one of these will be the right thing. Just gets a little expensive and tiring. <laughs> also for my loved ones, right? So that's the trap of gluttony. But what I need as a seven is to recognize where is the path? Only one place it can be. Right here, right now. Where is the fulfillment of my heart? Where is the freedom? Right here, right now, as we said from the beginning, where do I connect with grace that's raining down on me? Right now. But you see, all of us find that hard to believe. It's got to be somewhere over there. I got to go to the right workshop, the right retreat. Got to go on the right pilgrimage. Something else. That's where I'm going to find it. Here, now. <laughs> yes. Here, now or never. Very hard for us to believe that. So you can see the doubt and the fear part in the seven here. We don't believe it'll be there for us if we just were still and open ourselves. So seven, if we do that, if we open ourselves, if we just are where we are, usually we're going to feel anxious. We're going to feel scared. And in this a seven, I'm not used to that. It's been running the whole show, but I've been keeping myself occupied to not feel it. But I'm just like the six. I've got all this anxiety in me. Right? But just like the six, I breathe. And with that, I understand that fear, the presence of fear, does not necessarily mean something is going wrong. In fact, anytime I'm breaking out of my old ego identity, I guarantee you I will experience fear. All nine types. As you open more into the divine presence, you're going to be scared. You're moving into the unknown. And I'm relinquishing the strategy that I've held since a little kid to keep me safe and okay. So that's going to be scary. But if I do it and stay with it, ah, I get the virtue of the seven starts to grow in me. As I start to feel the freedom and know this satisfaction and really recognize it, the virtue here is sobriety. And I would add another word to it. It's sobriety slash gratitude. 
In other words, I need nothing but this moment. I feel my heart filled. I know the freedom is here. And suddenly I bring this clear, delicious satisfaction that is unshakable. Every moment is a moment for thanks. Every moment, a moment of gratitude, whatever's happening. And I tell you, I, I don't know why, for me personally, I find it easy to come to this in New Mexico. And I'll tell you, for me, I'll just paint an image. Waking up somewhere around here on a brisk morning, especially this time of year, just sit down. You can have a cup of coffee or tea if you prefer. Just look out at that sky and the land in front of you. Smell your coffee. Be there in that moment. You won't know anything but you, the infinite freedom of your being, the grace of the moment, and this deep gratitude. And my friends, if you're a seven, that's everything you'll ever want. It's the quality of being where you are. You can have it in a traffic jam. So that's our thinking types. We've been thinking about the thinking types. So uh, I think you're going to go into triad groups now. So you want to be holding how these three components operate in you. Your relationship with being grounded here in the moment. Your relationship with being really with your heart. Not just emotionally reacting, but abiding. And your relationship with being willing to drop into this great stillness of your soul. So thank you, and uh, to be continued. Thank you. For more information on this and other conferences presented by the Center for Action and Contemplation, call 505-247-1636 or visit the CAC website at www.cacradicalgrace.org.